when uh, Dave was praying for those in the service, I couldn't keep from remembering what Diana told me about a recent phone call from Micah. <laughs> Micah's faithful to call his grandmother frequently. He does his best to attend a church on Sunday and Wednesday night Bible study when he's not on duty. And so he's been looking for a church near the base that he really feels is the right one. And he said, Grandma, is it okay if I attend a Protestant church? <laughs> he had never heard of a Protestant church before. <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> Concerning the class tonight, when we had to cancel the, serve the evening meetings, initially I thought, well, the classroom notes are written with such detail, why don't we just encourage everybody to stay home and read them? And when I mentioned that to the various ones, they said, no, we'd rather hear the talk. And so we've decided to go ahead and have the class, but you know, we have to take into account the fact that we are human beings, aren't we? And so if those of you who attend the festivities with the Bible Bowl group this afternoon are so worn out you don't show up tonight, or if you lost too much sleep last night and don't show up, I'll not be offended. And, uh, but I'm not sure about God. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we're, we're, only, we're doing that because uh, we did get that expression from various ones. We'd rather go and have the class, so we will have that tonight. The Mosaic Covenant was a covenant that contained a host of physical elements. God had made this covenant with Israel, and in it had these many elements that enabled them to fulfill the covenant. It also enabled them to fulfill their religious experience in a way that was very real to them as human beings. We think about several that immediately come to mind. The first one that comes to my mind is the brazen serpent. You remember when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they went to an area in which there were just a host of poisonous snakes and snakes began biting the people and they became sick. And, and so Moses cried out to God and God said, build a serpent, make a brazen serpent and put it on a pole and any time anyone is bitten by a snake, look at that and look to me as the healer and they'll be healed. And so that brazen serpent was given as a, shall we say, a point of contact to which they could look and express their faith in God that he would heal them, and he did. Now, of course, with anything physical like that, it became a problem and soon it became an idol. And so in time, during time of uh, reformation, it had to be destroyed. We think of the sacred tent, the tent of the meeting that was designed by Jehovah's himself. The Hebrew word is mishkan, which means a dwelling place. The Greek word is skene, which means a tent. And when Jerome was translating the Old Testament from Hebrew and Greek into Latin, he chose the Latin word for tent, tabernaculum. And it's interesting to me that this one, along with Various other terms from the Latin we have kept over, and so we think of the tabernacle, when really we'd more appropriately just say the tent, or the tent of meeting. The temple itself was designed by Jehovah, and the caution was, 
do this exactly the way I have designed it, how the pomegranates were to be made, the golden pomegranates and so on. Every detail was to be made exactly as God had given it. The temple furnishings, the table of shewbread, the seven-branched lampstand, the altar of incense, the holy veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place, the ark of the covenant that was in that very holy of holies, and above it, golden angels hovered over it that they were to construct and build in an ornate way over that ark. And then the sacred items that were within the ark itself. In the courtyard, there was the altar, and then near that was the huge laver through which the priests cleansed themselves before they came to offer the sacrifices. And of course, circumcision, a physical sign upon the males at least, that God was in covenant with Israel. And when you think about it, even the land of Palestine, this was God's land, and it was given to them as inheritance. And as you read the covenant that God made with Israel, the real estate itself was a part of that covenant. The Old Testament covenant is a very physical covenant. As a matter of fact, you notice how many times in that covenant the promise is made that if you are obedient, you will materially prosper. A very material covenant. But that was not God's final covenant. Hebrews verse 8 and verse 13. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And Paul wrote in Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law, or the old covenant, has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Today we live in the age of that new covenant. The covenant that's offered to us through Jesus Christ. And again in Hebrews, beginning with verse 9, we see the contrast. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. Rather than a covenant filled with a plethora of physical symbols and material elements, God has given to you and to me a new covenant that is a spiritual covenant, a covenant of the heart, not just outward obedience. And our new covenant does not have a host of physical elements. God has given us only two physical ordinances under the new covenant. 
we humans, we're being flesh and blood, being who we are, need something physical to assist us in our spiritual growth and our spiritual life and are giving ourselves to God. And God has given us two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now this morning, and the next time I will be in the pulpit, which will be March 23rd, I want to bring some foundational teaching on these two ordinances, baptism and communion. Now, you wonder why? Well, often we just assume that everyone has an understanding of these very basic matters. We think, well, kids grew up in the church, we've been here for years, and I'd say probably most of us do, but perhaps some don't. And so, because some perhaps have never had the opportunity to study these matters in depth, today and on the 23rd of March, we're going to be speaking about these two ordinances. This morning, we're going to begin by talking about baptism. Jesus said, and I'm sure almost everyone here can quote this, Jesus came unto them and saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you, even unto the end of the world or the end of the age, depending on how you translate the Greek word, I own. Now the imperative in this command is make disciples. But you can't make disciples without some sort of going. You can sit on your back porch and look at the clouds and meditate upon the second coming of Jesus forever, but you will not make disciples unless you go out to those who are both near and those who are far. But how are disciples to be made? Jesus said, do it this way. Baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. After you have done that, then, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. I'm not going to tell stories today and be entertaining because this subject, I think, is too serious. Ten days, approximately ten days, depending on where you use Jewish way of counting or our way, about ten days after Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost and Peter preached the first gospel message that had been preached into the new covenant. And he said to them, this Jesus that you have taken and with wicked hands have crucified, God has raised up and made him both Lord and Christ. And the Holy Spirit convicted many in that crowd, not all, but many. And those who were convicted seemed to begin crying out, what will we do? What will we do? Look what we've done. And Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise isn't just unto you, but to you and to your children, as many afar off as the Lord our God should call. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And the Greek word is ice, into or toward or for the purpose of forgiveness of sins. 
throughout the book of Acts, consistently in response to this clear command of Christ, that is the consistent instruction and behavior given by the apostles and the evangelists to those who would be saved. Now, because today there's so much conversion or confusion rather in the church world about baptism, we have to ask, what did Peter mean when he said, be baptized? And what is the significance of that for those who would be born again? And so this morning, we're going to consider the answer to the question, what is baptism? And the first thing we're going to consider is the answer to the question, what is baptism in its mode? What is the mode of baptism? Baptism is an anglicization of the Greek word baptizo. The primary meaning of that word is to dip, to plunge, or to immerse. And if you look in any Greek lexicon, and the two most popular are Thayer and Arndt and Gingrich, also called Begad. Here's what Thayer says, and in each case he accompanies each of these with citations. The primary meaning is to dip repeatedly, to emerge, to submerge, then to cleanse by dipping or submerging, to wash, to make clean, metaphorically to overwhelm. Begad, accompanied with citations, primary meaning is to dip, to immerse, to dip oneself, to wash, to plunge, sink, drench, overwhelm. It's also used for the Jewish ritual washings and typologically of Israel's passage through the Red Sea. Now, some wanting to challenge the idea that Jesus commanded immersion start looking for some remote and somewhat obscure use of the term. For instance, it's used for washing, cooking, and eating utensils. How do you wash cooking utensils and eating utensils? Now today, because we have running water, I'll often put them in the sink and scrub. <laughs> but for much of my life, I've washed those things by filling a basin with water. <laughs> and I immersed them in it, and there was soap. And then I had another basin with hot water, and I immersed them in it, and I rinsed them. And historically, that's the way cooking utensils and eating utensils were washed by dipping them, by immersing them in water. Washing hands, again, we stick under the faucet, but for history, most of history, that wasn't true. I remember going to my grandfather and grandmother's farm, and you'd have a pail of water, and here was a, a wash basin, and you'd pour water in it, and you put your hands in there. You would immerse them. And then the next person using the same water would do the same thing. And after a while, you'd throw it out and everybody wiped their hands with the same cloth. It was immersion. To engage in some sort of lexiconic pursuit of some remote use of the word. An effort to avoid the obvious I have to question why. 
When Roman Catholicism, centuries after the New Testament church, began to, and this was centuries later, began to accept sprinkling in place of immersion, the Greek Catholic Church did not go along with the Roman Catholic Church because you can't convince a Greek, baptizo means anything other than immerse. And so today in the Greek Catholic Church, even though they baptize babies, they immerse babies because to a Greek, that's what the word means. And then, of course, there's much weightier evidence from other scripture. Here's a copy of the Roman Catholic English Bible. This is the New Catholic edition. It has the imprimatur of... uh, Bishop, uh, let's see, Archbishop, rather, Archbishop Cardinal Spellman. Pretty important. And here's what it says about Romans 6. Verse 3. St. Paul alludes to the manner in which baptism was ordinarily conferred in the primitive church by immersion. The descent into the water is suggestive of the descent of the body into the grave. And the ascent is suggestive of the resurrection to a new life. St. Paul obviously sees more than a mere symbol in the rite of baptism. As a result of it, we're incorporated into Christ's mystical body and to live a new life. So even Roman Catholics would say, indeed, the New Testament church, recognizing the command of Jesus, practice immersion. Around 120 A.D., there was a document that was distributed among the churches. The full title is the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. The Greek word teaching is didache, so it is commonly just called the didache. It discusses baptism. Here's what it says. Concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, in living water, but if you have no living water, no, there's running water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot do so in cold water, then do so in warm. But if you have neither, pour out water three times on the head in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, immerse. But let's say somebody gets saved in a prison cell how are you going to immerse them? But you probably have a bucket of water. So pour water on their heads three times. That's expedient. That's the best you can do. But but what we want to do is immerse because that's the understanding. Ancient church architecture also is relevant. The oldest church building to have been discovered is in the village of Deuteropa, which is in modern-day Syria. In 1928, there were some archaeologists who were uh, exploring this, French-American archaeologists. In the process, they found a house that had been converted into a church building. And those of you who attended the Sunday night seminar the year that we taught on the first four centuries of the church, remember seeing the photographs we had of that in those notes. On the north side of the assembly room, there was a baptistry set into the wall. And if you today were to visit a Baptist church 
or a Church of Christ or a Nazarene church building and you would see their baptistry, it's almost exactly like the one in the house at Duryaropa, which was built prior to 256 A.D. Also, the beautiful cathedrals that are built, church buildings prior to 1300, many of them have a baptistry within the building or even a separate building. It was the custom even, so architecture displays that. In my research, first example I can find any record, any written record, of anyone who was baptized with something other than immersion is the case of Novation, uh, Novatus, rather. Now, Novatus was a very ambitious man, and he had never been baptized. He became quite sick, and on the sick bed. Because he was too sick to take out to a pool and immerse, he wanted to be baptized, they poured buckets of water on him. This they call aspersion. It was expedient. However, he didn't die. They thought he was going to die, and he didn't. And some years later, being an ambitious man, he began pressing the church to ordain him as a bishop. And many objected, and one of the main objections that was brought forth was, Novatus has never been baptized. All they did was pour water on him. <laughs> and so even, this is reported in 325, the writings of Eusebius. So even here you see the controversy, oh, this is an expedient, but we cannot let the expedient become the norm, and we're not even sure it is acceptable. You know, it's so interesting that we humans have a tendency to always want to change things or improve them. We can't leave well enough alone. One period in church history, uh, the custom arose of having catechumens. And so somebody could come to the church service and they could sit there while the reading of the scripture and the prayers. But when it came time for the Lord's Supper, they had to leave the room unless they'd been immersed. But nobody could be immersed unless they had attended church for a year and had been taught, and these were called the catechumens, and after a year then they would immerse them and then immediately they could have the Lord's Supper. Far different from the biblical idea, baptize the same hour of the night. Jesus said baptize, then teach, don't teach. And another thing I've read about, and frankly, I've never taken the time to verify this, and I really need to do so, but I read of one record that said during one period of church history, in order to, all immersions, people were naked. They insisted you take off your old clothes, which were part of sin, you're in the baptistry naked, you're immersed, and they give you a white robe. By the way, the reason we pull these curtains all the way is for modesty. Now, some of you sitting at the sides don't like that. They say pull the curtains back. But listen, it's important we pull these curtains to the center so as the person who has been, been baptized comes up out of the water and is walking up the steps with wet garments clinging to them, we protect their modesty by pulling these drapes all the way closed. I wanted to say that because you've had some folks gripe. You close those we can't see. Okay, live with it. This is... <laughs> This is in order to protect the modesty of those who have come up out of the water. 
Well, on and on I could go, but it's just very clear that Jesus commanded immersion, the apostles commanded and practiced immersion, and immersion was the only form of baptism known in the church until centuries after the close of the New Testament. And so at TCF, in obedience to Christ's command, we immerse. And based upon scripture and the early history of the church, if you have only been sprinkled or poured, you have not been baptized regardless of what the church called that ceremony. Now, as an aside, you might ask, well, what about those who have accepted Christ but have experienced only sprinkling? About 200 years ago, there people really wrestled with that question, and they began to call those who had been sprinkled but not immersed the, the pious unimmersed. Now, seriously, that's not funny. That's a good term, really. Very, really pious people who have never experienced immersion. I have to be very careful about giving a pronouncement on this topic because I'm not God. And so I have to be careful because immersion was the only thing known in the New Testament. There is no comment in Scripture on those who have just had sprinkling or pouring. But I do have an opinion, and for what it's worth, it may be worth nothing. <laughs> but it's my opinion is that when someone comes to Christ, sincerely giving his heart to Jesus, he will do whatever the preacher tells him to do. And if that preacher says we must be immersed, he will be immersed. If that preacher says, pray the sinner's prayer. By the way, the sinner's prayer is no older than the late 1800s. D.L. Moody, reacting to Finney's mourner's bench, what he thought was manipulative, then began to practice the inquirer's room where he had people pray. But the sinner's prayer really is not a biblical practice. But if that's what the preacher tells you to do, that's what you'll do. If the preacher pours water on you and says, this is what's happened, this is what God wants, that's what you'll do. The convert is, heart is right before God, he'll do whatever the evangelist has told him to do. It's hard for me to look at that and say all who have not been immersed are damned. Those who have just been sprinkled and poured but you understand that's my opinion, and God may view it otherwise. However, if at a later time that person has shown that our Lord commanded immersion and the apostles commanded and practiced immersion, and that person refuses to obey Christ on this issue, then that's another matter. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because the command of Christ, TCF immerses, that's a requirement for church membership, and this is not just a rule. It is not just a rule. 
It is a clear command of Jesus that we dare not violate. First of all, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And secondly, the leaders of this church do not want to risk standing before God someday and saying, Lord, we know what you commanded. But in spite of that, we chose to put our approval on a human substitute. I don't know what God would do to us if we stood before him with that kind of an attitude, saying we know what you commanded, but we felt we could take the authority and allow something else. So if you have not been baptized, if you've only been sprinkled or have only prayed the so-called sinner's prayer, and you're content to stand before God in that condition, that's your decision. But we do not, as leaders, want to run the risk of saying, as far as church membership is concerned, we'll approve that, or we would be saying, get off the throne, Jesus. We know something else just as good. What is immersion? Well, its spiritual significance is even greater when we see the act. First thing we note is it's a means of our acting out the death of the unredeemed life, buried, dead, and the resurrection, the new birth of a new life inhabited by the Spirit of Jesus. Remember in Romans 5, Paul presented a beautiful picture of grace, free gift of God. And then he begins in chapter 6 by saying since grace is so wonderful and grace is extended by God should we sin more so grace can abound more? Here's what Paul said. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Oh may it never be. Greek word is meganoito. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been immersed into Christ Jesus have been immersed into his death? Into his death. Let's stop right there. Paul wrote to the Galatians, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself, loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Colossians 2.20, if you have died with Christ till the elementary principles of the world why, as if you were still living in the world, do you submit yourself, and so on and so on. Colossians 3.3, 3, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.5, consider the members of your earthly body dead to immorality, and so on. And he 
lists many of these. Romans 6, 6 through 7, knowing this, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died is free from sin. 6.11, even so consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 6.4, we have been buried with him through immersion into death. Colossians 2.12, having with buried with him in immersion. When we witness an immersion, the first part of that, the first thing we are witnessing is a funeral. We're standing by a graveside and participating in a committal service. Even as God has chosen, we say at that service, to take unto himself the spirit of our departed brother or sister, we therefore commit his body to the grave, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, ensure a certain hope of the resurrection that will take place by the power of Jesus and the body is lowered into the grave. In baptism, the same thing happens. I baptize you into the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that person dying, that dead person is put in the grave. The watery grave of Christian immersion. And in that act, we are united with him in death. And even as he was buried, we are buried. But then the other part, we rise. We rise to walk in newness of life. Glory be to God, we rise to walk. We are a new creature. We have been, to use the language of John, born from above, says born again, but the Greek really says born from above. A new birth has taken place. Romans 6, 4 and 5, we have been buried with him through immersion into death. So as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And as that body bursts forth from the watery grave, a new creature has come forth, having met the Holy Spirit in his immersion. That's what Peter promised, you remember. If we die with Christ, verse 48 of Romans 6, we believe we shall live with him. Verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2.12, Colossians 3. We'll not read all of these verses. There are just so many. And so our Lord has given us a physical and visual ordinance. Knowing we are humans and we need material things through which we can express our faith, and he's given only two. And one is the burial of the old person and the birth of the new. What a beautiful thing <laughs> to think about. 
Another significant thing is this. The New Testament presents the act of immersion as the moment in when our sins are removed. Peter said, repent, be immersed every one of you into the name of Jesus Christ, I sin to for the purpose of the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 22:16. Paul recounts his conversion. Ananias came to him and said, Why tarriest thou rise and be immersed, washing away your sins and calling upon the name of the Lord? Peter wrote an interesting thing in 1 Peter 3:20 and following, talking about the disobedient spirits during the days of Noah, he said, uh, who were once disobedient when once the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, referring to the ark, eight persons were brought safely through the water, and that ark, he says, corresponding to that ark, immersion now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the erection of Jesus Christ. Notice it's clear that it's not the water, it's not the external element, but it is the heart in the act. You can walk into the baptistry, a dry center, and come out a wet center. The heart, the conscience has to be involved in the act. Now, you know, some people say, well, wait a minute. You know, is, is sin removed the minute you believe, the minute the minute you confess, the minute you're immersed. Well, Scripture presents it, really, in, in, from the day of Pentecost onward, as immersion. But I think, isn't it silly to try to sort all that out? Why not just do it? <laughs> Why not believe? Why not repent, which is really surrendering our heart to the Lord? Be willing to testify to it and be immersed. Why argue about at what point does it happen? It's the salvation package that we see consistently presented in Scripture. One thing we have to recognize again is the importance of the heart. Remember, God gave the Jews strong commands about how they were to meet and the sacrifices they were to offer and so on. Twice in the Old Testament, you find God saying, I can't stand what you're doing. Those, those sacrifices burning, all that incense to me, that's a stench. It stinks. Why? Because they were using an outward ceremony in which they took their hope rather than truly loving and serving God. Remember the Pharisees in Matthew 23? Jesus talked about them the same way. You tithe mint, amos, and cunnum, but you omit the weightier matters of the law. Not only that, you don't even do what you command the people to do. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You make other people do it, and you don't do it. And then he said, these ought you to have done and not leave the other undone also. You Pharisees are whited sepulchers because all you have is the outside performance. And you don't even always do that. But you love to be praised. And so you're whited sepulchers. But 
do this, but don't leave the other undone. The heart is important. The modern evangelical world has substituted the sinner's prayer for immersion. Roman Catholic world has substituted infant sprinkling and confirmation. The Reformed Church has instituted sprinkling as a replacement for circumcision to make you a part of the covenant community which ultimately saves you. And the church world through human reasoning, convenience, pragmatism, and often with the most sincere heart has so confused this issue that we have to find some solid place to stand. If you look out at the church world today, you, you, you hear the swirls. What's it all about? We have to look for some solid place to stand. And without passing judgment, and I mean that with all of my heart, without passing judgment on any of these, for that's God's business, not ours. We have to adhere to what Jude calls in Jude 3, the faith once for all delivered to the saints without making adjustments. And so we seek to obey the command of Jesus. We seek to obey the commands and follow the example of the apostles. We seek to follow the example of the church as it consistently practiced these things for the first several centuries. And so this morning, it is not to press anything on you, but honestly, it is out of the concern of my heart that I say to you, if you have not been immersed, you need to take care of it. It is a command of Jesus Christ. Now, we continue on this morning and talk about Colossians 2, 11, and 12 and how that relates to Galatians 3, 27. But the clock says time to quit. <laughs> Next Sunday, the baptistry will be used. We pray the steps will be wet. We pray we'll not damage the sound equipment as people come in and out of the baptistry. Well, what a glorious day that'll be. Don't miss the opportunity. Father God, we thank you. Thank you for the clear example we see. And you alone know the hearts of those who are here. Have your way with our hearts through Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jim. Let's stand together as we prepare to dismiss. Remind you, the final Sunday night seminar class of the winter semester will be tonight at 5.30. Bible Bowl and Fast Track immediately following the service. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful.